Hey guys, I'm Giuseppe Santamaria, the photographer behind Men in This Town and editor of Mitt Magazine. I want to welcome you to a new episode of Portrait Session, in partnership with Armani Exchange Connected. This podcast takes a closer look at who the men on the street are by bringing them into the studio for a portrait and having a chat about the particular approach to the many facets of life. This week, I connected with Dan Brophy, a filmmaker and content creator based here in Sydney. We met while working on a project together and hit it off right away. His positive lens on life and how he makes it work for him is a breath of fresh air in a time when negativity seems to reign supreme. With creativity at his core, he seems to have found happiness in his work. But how does that translate in his own time? Or is it all the same? Head over to meninthistown.com to view selects from our portrait session. And in the meantime, I really hope you enjoy the conversation that took place. conversation about a week ago and um didn't end up recording so we're kind of having another day yeah that was the uh that was the costume run through yes and now i know what my hit my, what my marks are exactly my key points that i want to make we know where to go we know where to go with it all also i was so, so excited the last time just like super interested in being able to talk about this stuff because so much of what we discussed is really important like near and dear to Absolutely. my heart and so I was, I think, a little bit too excited, and that translated <laughs> in talking really fast. Right, as we breathing. always do, and we're just like, <laughs> I could babble on and on and on and not kind of articulate myself very well. So it's like, totally. I, I should be able to kind of just stop, think about what I want to say, and kind of say it nice and smooth. Exactly. So we'll, we'll, we'll have a take two, part two going on. Um, how about you introduce yourself? We'll start over there. Okay, so my name is Dan Brophy. I'm a, I've got a content creation company. I'm a filmmaker and I'm an avid podcaster myself. I have a podcast called the Quit Your Day Job Podcast, which is a podcast for frustrated creatives. And I am someone who loves creativity and creatives. So I wanted to design not only a career, but also passion, hobby, life that allows me to engage with creative people about how they do what they do. So you're going to be next on my, <laughs> on my oh, interview hit list of people to, whose <laughs> process I want to examine. Um, so what are you wearing today? So today I'm wearing, well, this is really indicative of what I would wear most days because I work for myself. I run my own creative office and I've always generally worked in creative spaces except for a couple, about a two-year corporate <laughs> deliance. We all which have those. We'll, we'll, we'll get to that later. That was like one of those difficult, dark times in my life, which I'm sure will come up because it always seems to. But in general, I work for myself and I like to look like the boss. But at the same time, I ride my bike everywhere. More often than not, I end up on a film set every second day. I'm doing heavy lifting. I can't wear brogues. You know, I need to be able to wear com super comfortable shoes that still look great. So I use that as an excuse to just buy lots of really great pairs of sneaks and I you know today I'm wearing pretty much all Nikes and one of them is basically like a super woven pseudo Missoni <laughs> kind of material mm. and the other one is um, just a, a fancy Air Max and 
I always start from there because I find that if my feet are comfortable and my pants, my legs aren't too bound in like super tight pants, I could do anything. You know, I yeah. could have anything going on up top. So usually I'll counter a casual bottom half with a smarter upper half. So in this instance today, I'm doing the Canadian tuxedo. I'm doing double denim, a lighter pair of 501s that are a bit more um, of a fitted cut. And then I am doing a darker vintage Wrangler denim jacket, but I've added a little bit of a, you know, a point of difference with the fact that I'm wearing a Gucci neckerchief and a uh, Armani Exchange Connect watch gold little bit of a point of difference because I wanted to look a bit, you know, smart, even though I am wearing double denim. Yeah. And um, and then just a white tee, but even the, even the white tee, I always go for... Basically, I'm always on the lookout for a T-shirt with a point of difference. All block colours, all simple and well cut. But if I can find something that the material looks a bit more than just cotton, then yeah. that's another point of difference for otherwise. It's that detail that does make the biggest difference. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I really, I observed this, a friend of mine who has gotten back from Japan recently and all of his t-shirts are so beautiful. Yeah. And you talk about Japanese clothing. Yeah, like... <laughs> you can really tell the difference. Yeah. So what I've done, I mean, I brought a couple of looks along today for us to shoot with and it's, they're all indicative of me in my day to day. So another one is um, the black Air Max with a Adidas fitted beautifully okay, the material is indestructible it's a three-stripe tracksuit pant but basically beautifully shaped like you know, this amazing it fits like the, the like the nicest pair of suit pants but yeah, they're tracksuit yeah. pants and then are I they was, new have you had them for a while uh, i got them last they were my replacement for denim last winter so right. i bought them you know 12, 12 months ago pretty much and i've lived in them when it's been cold enough in sydney to yeah. wear pants and that i've done with a Another beautiful uh, material, black Uniqlo collaboration T-shirt, with which is something between like a cotton, bamboo, elastane. You know, it's yeah, got yeah. it's got a few different materials, but it feels like it's from the future. Well, we were also, just talking about earlier, just with the Uniqlo uh, clothing, just getting better and better and actually looking better, and not like it was used to be just technical. It was and now. yeah. Well, they've always said, "Look, we're a tech company, not a fashion company," yeah. and it showed once yeah. upon a time, and that they always had these amazing ideas behind the mm. microfiber that was water resistant, etc. But you'd put it on, you'd kind of feel like a sexless robot, mm -hmm. and then you know now they've managed to do these great collaborations with other designers. One of my favorite of which is a J.W. Anderson collab, which is yeah. in store at the moment. But they, um, I think it's actually inspired the way that they make their own in-house clothing as well. So you can still get $50 pairs of pants, which are ultimately trousers that fit like denim, mm. which is so, they're so great. You have to, you know, there's a lot on offer and you have to go through a lot to there find lot. <laughs> what works for you. But I'm happy to spend three or four hours to work out what works and then to just buy it in four colors. Absolutely. So that look, that was the uh, black Air Max, black uh, Adidas three-stripe tracksuit pants, a black beautifully cut heavy T-shirt. And then that point of difference was this beautiful black um, pashmina from India but with a gold brocade stitching all over the top. So it looks kind of like a feminine um, floral pattern in this heavy golden stitch in the black pashmina, yeah. but wearing it with this sort of Boise tracksuit pant um, and t-shirt look and some fat sneaks. I love that high-low mask femme. Yeah, cross, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's what's so interesting about that, the conversation around fashion being um, 
just becoming more gender neutral. But then also kind of how are you blending the genders together? And women were really good at doing that for years and yeah. are do, doing it now. But how do men kind of bring in that feminine kind of touch? You know, it was never necessarily um, guys bringing the femininity into fashion. It was always the other And the way thing around. is, it's such an easy way to look avant-garde or to look distinguished and still look cool in that even I've always, my, you know what, you heard it here first, listeners. This is my one-stop shop for finding a cutting-edge trend in fashion, hair, what have you. Just look at what was popular with women six months ago yeah. and then do it now yeah. and you will look infinitely cooler than any, any other male yeah. that you know. For example, I knocked off Florence Welsh from Florence and the Machines haircut about a year ago and I, I got myself like a fringe and like a long yeah, yeah. I, it, was, it was somewhere between Florence Welsh meets like the Duchess of York in the early in the late 80s I, I literally took photos of both of those women and also it looked like Caroline de Magray, you know that amazing Parisian fashion blogger yeah 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 so, who yeah. I'm obsessed with and so I, I read her book, um, How to Look, How to Be Parisian Wherever You Are, or yeah. something like yes, that. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was so inspired that I was like, okay, I want to get my hair cut like this woman. And so I took this, a few different references, all female, all looks that wouldn't have set the world on fire if you were a girl doing it 12 months ago. Yeah. But as a guy doing it, it just looked so cool. And yeah. then I, I feel like that has been my trick whenever I want to see what uh, prints to wear or what sort of cuts to wear or, you know, the fact that... If you wanted to, I feel, I feel now if you want to look like a cutting edge guy, just wear a pair of high-waisted flared jeans and you'll look super schmick, which yeah. is another. And, you know, that's sort of not that cool for girls to do right now because it's been around for a while. But yeah. guys haven't quite started doing it yet. No. So. And, and, don't, and you don't see it as much. So, like, when guys kind of take on women's trends. So I think that's a smart tip that I've never really heard before. Yes. Look at that. Fantastic. So I guess... Um, we were talking a little bit about kind of how your personal style does kind of incorporate um, or works for what you do for a living, which is a filmmaker, a content creator. How did you get into that? How, what was the path for you? Yeah, I, I was uh, coming up, I realized uh, at a time when my, my first year out of high school was the year YouTube was invented. So not high school, sorry, film school. So I was, I really am the first generation of filmmaker that's emerged in the content space. And content's only been a catchphrase that's really been around a small handful of years. YouTube was registered as a business in April 2005. I graduated 2006. The very first jobs that I ever had was in my last couple of years of film school going around to businesses, fashion businesses, and saying, hey, I'll make you a, a moving catalog for your website so people can see how the clothes move and we can interpret the story of the season. So this was basically fashion content, fashion film, mm -hmm. before it was even... A catchphrase. Yeah. And more and in Australia as well, which yeah. would have been kind of really starting it all. And I think the, the only reason I did do that was because I've always worked in retail since I was 16. And when I was in my mid-20s and coming out of film school, I just went to what I knew. And I thought, well, I can, I've always done modeling. I've always done, um, you know, retail. I know all these people personally. Mm. Surely someone will give me a couple of grand to make uh, some advertising for them. And Sure enough, like my first few um, jobs were shot on 16mm film because digital in the mid-2000s wasn't so strong. Yeah. Um, the, the, the most affordable way to shoot good-looking um, video was actually to shoot it on film and have it digitized. Wow. Yeah. So I, uh, all of my early <laughs> films in my day were uh, on, on actual film. 
And it just meant that I think as the as technology was advancing and as the democratization of technology meant that more and more people had access to shoot beautiful looking stuff, mm. I rode that wave first in getting in collaborating with other cinematographers to shoot for me. Then in the, the middle of my sort of in my late twenties, I, I moved to Sydney and I started to work on shows like Australia's Next Top Model, and oh. you know I, I would do all the the shooting myself because I, I couldn't basically afford to have someone shoot for me. So yeah. I just thought, oh well, I better <laughs> better learn to do this myself. I think that's a great, and that's something to say with kind of the Australian industry is that because we are kind of small, there we have to do so many things ourselves. But that's a, I think a good thing, you know. One thousand percent. And you know, someone asked me recently, a, a um, female director uh, asked me how she could potentially, you know, jumpstart her career to start getting access to the sort of work she wanted to be doing. I said, if you want to learn how to direct, you better learn how to produce and you should certainly mm -hmm. learn how to edit and you may as well learn how to write. Because if you are creatively self-sufficient in terms of making the sort of work that you want to be directing by making it happen for yourself, yeah. you've got a license to print money. You know, you can, you can write your own ticket. And I think in this day and age, I mean, if that's not already the way people are thinking, that that is definitely the way they'll be thinking in the not too distant future because Absolutely. it's just inevitable. And I think around the world they need to kind of start thinking like that. I mean, just for an example, my partner I was working at GQ last year. I was there for eight years. But they have a small team of four people, four or five people creating this magazine where in the States, American GQ has probably 10 people in the art department alone. And it's like, you know, it's especially when this is the times moving forward, it's there's a lot of cutbacks and you need to kind of save money in different kind of elements. So, But also, like, it's a great opportunity, you know, to be, not, a, yeah. be a bigger fish in a smaller pond mm -hmm. and have more excuses to work on more, you know, for you to be uh, a junior in an environment like that and just to then go to your, your bosses and say, I want to shoot, I want to art direct, I want to, you know, they might yeah. not give you the keys to the city straight away. No, right. But if you show initiative and, and start to actively make the work outside of work hours and prove that you can do it, mm -hmm. why wouldn't they get someone within the team to do this stuff Absolutely. for them? You, in the hands of the right uh, person with into, in, who is, um, had initiative and was ambitious, those opportunities in this day and age are worth their weight in gold because if you were working in New York and you said to someone, you know, I want to do something outside my pay grade, well, get in line because there's three more people waiting to do it before you. Yeah, absolutely. But here, there's no choice but for us to be resourceful and to use, to make the most of every opportunity. And at the end of the day, if you're prepared to work for not that much, you can definitely get opportunities. You know, I think that for me, when I was making the most of my, um, just coming out of film school and wanting to, to create the sort of work that I wanted, I just said yes to everything and mm -hmm. generally worked for free as often as I could until I had done every single job on a film set. Which now, as, as the person who's asking other people to do that job for me, I speak their language, I know what I'm asking of them, I have respect for their process, mm -hmm. I don't tell them how to do their job because I understand what it's like to be working yeah. in that role. So I think it really pays to, if you, I mean, I can't even imagine that someone would have aspirations to have an active creative career and not be prepared to do everything, yeah, to work for free. Yeah, just to be one niche little kind of segment of something it's like you want to be able to do as much as you can i think I mean, personally that's how i've kind of been raised is do it all yourself if you have to you know? yeah like it's well my um the 
Indian connection with the pashmina, the brocade pashmina that I was yeah. wearing. My mum's side of the family is Indian, and that nationality, I, I came to understand firsthand a family trait that I, I've grown up with when I went over there, which is basically everyone does everything. You know, mm-hmm. yes, labor is inexpensive, and people have, you know, staff to do most things for them. But there's a certain pride to knowing, you know, if you want it fixed, you should know how to fix it, and if you want that thing made, you should know how to sew it, and if you your thing is broken, you shouldn't have had to mend it. And so I don't, I think I've grown up in an environment that's really valued the notion of the Renaissance man or the mm-hmm. Renaissance woman, that there's sort of no excuse for not being able to do it yourself. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I think by doing that, it also kind of, you're kind of forced in a lot of different ways to kind of work with other people and kind of learn how to connect with people in a different way than rather than, I don't know trying to say this, it's not kind of, um, it's more collaborative working with people rather than dictatorship or kind of dictating people. And it's something that I think we're, we're in Australia really able to kind of harness and do well at, I think. Well, I think the problem sometimes lies in the fact that we really, as, as a society, especially with Instagram being what it is, and I've definitely been guilty of falling into this mindset, is that it's a, it's a, a culture that values the, the, the prodigy or the, the person who is famous young mm. for being successful really quickly and there's not really much kudos or gravitas given to the slow burn career that allows you to get somewhere by being dedicated methodical taking your time and doing a lot of different having a lot of experience before you get to the place that you want to get to so the idea that you would set yourself the task of getting to the career that you value most but then be prepared to do everything it takes and have as much experience as possible in as many different roles on the way up the pyramid to get into where you want to go. Mm-hmm. So by the time you get to where you, you've aspired to, you're a really great leader and you're a really great you know, a person to then be able to delegate tasks to people who you're working with. Absolutely. Because I think if you jump straight to the power position, you don't respect it fully, mm-hmm. you don't understand it fully, and it's also not truly scalable because it's a lot more efficient to be able to pay someone when you understand exactly what you need them to do. Yeah, right. Because you you can generally find a more specialized, even working, like I think one of the reasons why I'm able to be really efficient in the work that I do is because I can find really talented juniors and people who are junior and mid-level because I understand exactly what they need to do so I can look at their skill set, I can see what it is that the role requires Mm -hmm. and I don't need to hire broadly, I hire really specifically and then try and find someone with a few great supplementary skills that you can then develop within the business. So therefore, you know, if I didn't know what that role required, I'd probably need to hire a more expensive, more senior person and just hope that they'd cover the base. Yeah. I I think I saw an interview with um, Margot Robbie and was... She was kind of explaining how when she worked here, it was home and away, was it? Neighbours, I think. Neighbours, yeah. She looked at that job as a job and it was like where she went to every day, you know, having a smaller kind of team where she kind of got to see how everything worked and kind of was really involved in the the making of a a TV show. And you see now where she is now and kind of being able to actually produce films and direct films and act in films. It's like, it's by kind of getting a really hands-on experience here in Australia, she was able to kind of bring all those kind of uh, things that she learned overseas and create a huge career for herself, you know? Absolutely. And also, I think... It, may, it would equip you so well to be paying attention 
no matter mm, where you thought, yeah, yeah. be that hyper-absorbent sponge that is paying attention to everyone's task, everyone's name, everyone's ideas, because I feel like those are the people who are constantly, whoever's constantly inquisitive is constantly satisfied because they're really setting themselves new creative tasks all the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the actor then becomes a director or a writer yeah. or a producer because they have been paying attention and they can satisfy their own creative, you know, whims and yeah. become more self-sustaining. It's not just being there to just do that one job, you know, it's be there to observe and take learn, you know, because learning is something that we are all doing all the time and you never stop, I think, you well, know. Also, in Marco Robbie's case, I just watched I, Tonya two nights ago, actually, and she is a great actor and it, it's lovely that she has distinguished herself in that space because there's plenty more pretty girls where she came from. Mm. But that special source that she has that makes that distinguishes her in the space is probably that very intelligent, very aware person Absolutely. behind the scenes who is, you know, not missing out on a single opportunity to make the most of, of everything. Amazing. Something to learn from, definitely. Um, so what's your, um, your average day? in Sydney like what do you do kind yeah, of yeah I'm very lucky to have a, a mentor that lives down the street from me who asked me if I wanted to train to do gym in the morning with him and he's someone who's about five or six years older than me he is he and I are in different industries but I really admire not only what he's created for himself as someone who runs his own business and is a self-made like I don't even want to know how many millions of dollars he is <laughs> and uh, he for someone who's relatively young he is killing it and I love this guy as a friend and as, a, as a, a, a big brother and as a mentor and he just wanted to train, have, have a training buddy and I've, I'm like, well, I've been going to the gym every, every like three times a week since I was 16 so I can certainly show you around, <laughs> <laughs> around the gym in your building and, um, and that gets me out of bed at 5.45 oh most, most mornings of the week All and right. there's not many things that would because the temptation to sleep in or stay up late the night before or, and I think that one thing which we've been doing for about a year now has changed everything it's changed the fact that that I'm I'm probably in bed earlier than I've ever been in my entire life because I mean I'm getting up earlier than ever before mm. my eating has to be really specific to support that because my and my sleep is generally great now that my gym is literally over and done with and we're having a nice coffee and a shake at the at the yeah. corner cafe at seven yeah. Um, it means that my evenings are now free to invest in making my podcast and doing some research and, you know, consuming some culture. Or, you know, just it's it kickstarted my whole routine in a really positive way. And uh, the yes, I love the training, and it's just nice to get the gym over and done with early in the day. But the best part about it is I go to him with creative problems of how can I get over this hurdle with my business, or what would you do in, my, in, in this instance? And and similarly, he talks out whatever he's working on as well so I have this amazing model to to observe and I think just by osmosis and by the fact that I'm I can workshop whatever I'm looking at within my own sort of business and and creative problem solving it's a wonderful um, it's a wonderful interaction to have I'm, I think it's been a real game changer for me I, I love and I look forward to the opportunity to pay it back and to be that sort of um, reference point for anyone else who needs it in future but I think yeah. while I'm still you know building my business and building my place in the world I, I feel like this is a, a, an amazing opportunity for me to make the most of so that get that has definitely structured my life in a very specific way yeah and then in throughout the rest of the day you know I am someone who 
No, it's funny. I, I have two or three days, maybe two days of the week where I'll be at my desk and I'll do generally great focus work from eight to eight. And I'll have these mega 12, 13, 14 hour brain dump days mm. where I'll be so switched on and so amazing. And then for no rhyme or reason, some days are just really shit. Yeah. And I'll and I'll just have, no matter how hard I try to stop procrastinating and just write that pitch document or, you know, and I'm still workshopping the best way to get around that. But I, I think one of the ways in which I'm choosing to, to tackle that is by not flogging a dead horse and just trying to keep doing the thing that's not working, but instead use that time to workshop something else with my team. And I can all, in a conversation, I can always get the ideas out and get mm-hmm. the job done. This is the time that it's difficult to write the thing or to apply my ideas to something that's a bit more, you know, requires more concentration. That seems to need to be a special level of focus. And yeah. um, I also sometimes, the only time I do actually pull the pin on my morning training with my buddy is if I've got so much to do and I find that my most efficient work time is 5, 5.30 a.m. to 7.30, 8 a.m. Mm-hmm. So if I can even just... If I'm really under the pump, I'll just save that morning time for for focused, concentrated work. And that's the best. I can kickstart my brain into activity by just having coffee. By the time I'm sort of waking up, I'm at my desk and I'm already working on the thing. What is um, a way that you like to connect with people nowadays? Because we have social media, we have the internet, and I feel like we're still logged on to that. Mm. What's kind of that real way of kind of in person? Or, I mean, is internet something a way that you... Kind of have embraced to connect with people. Look, whether, whether it's IRL or digital, for me, uh, to work with someone, to creatively collaborate with them is, I think, the most my most sincere form of connection. When I, I was just recounting a story on the weekend that when I first started dating Paul, my boyfriend, he was applying for a grant to go uh, overseas to New York for a, an exhibition he was doing for some work that he made. And one of the first weekend activities that he and I did was I made a video for his possible or a Kickstarter campaign so he could pledge oh, for some money for to get over there. Amazing. And um, it was a really cute way for him to show my skills to him and to then work on something that mattered to him and to have this really fun, creative sense of play. And similarly with all of my friends, many of my uh, closest friends are my creative collaborators because mm-hmm. whenever I need to make something, I instantly just look in my friendship group and more often than not, most of my um, the tasks that I need filled, I can do so in my immediate circle. So I have a great respect for people I work with and a great friendship with people I work with, but actually the same goes in both ways. I can work with friends and I become friends with people I work with. For me, that is so crucial as far as how I want to design my day-to-day. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've had really dull periods of my life where I've been in environments surrounded by people who I didn't vibe off. And I know that that's most people's reality, but I'm actually, just as I would not stand to be in a romantic situation with someone who was energetically, you know, a mess, now I'm absolutely determined to not spend my work life in an environment surrounded by people who are energetically a mess either. And I mean, you know, you work solo, so you dictate the tone of your creative space. Mm -hmm. But I don't know what... I definitely took the better part of my 20s to realise that that was actually a very premium value for me and how I wanted to design my life. And I think to uh, undervalue that and to put yourself... It's almost like 
I mean, it's toxic. It's really oh God, damaging yeah, it. to be in, a, in an environment with people who are um, negative, like, like even emotionally self-destructive. Forget about all the other self-destructive people things do in terms of like the other toxic habits that people engage in if they're self-sabotaging. But even just emotionally self-destructive people are taxing to be around. And you absorb it. Like I know I absorb people's energy, whether it's good or bad. And it's just, I don't know, is there a way that you've dealt with it in the past or is the only way to deal with it just to kind of get rid of it in your life? I think you observe yourself hanging by a thread enough times and you think, okay, let's do a little analysis on what's going on here. Like, why do I feel so bad? Like, what? And then you kind of realize I'm, I'm so, I've, you know, in my most sort of, at the point at which I, I actually realized, I went to see it, um, I was looking for any answer possible to help me solve why my body was so distraught with um. I basically went to see a kinesiologist after I couldn't, no, no amount of massaging or traditional medicine could answer why my back was so sore and my neck mm, was my yeah. neck was so bound. And I went to see a kinesiologist who basically is, that's the sort of a study of the holistic self from everything you eat, what your emotional situation is like and what your body's doing. And they just sort of anal analyze that and they yeah. work from that place. And the, the, the practitioner I spoke to basically said, look, what is your work environment like? Because your body is sort of closing in on itself and the reason why you've got such a bad back pain, no matter how you sleep and how you stretch and how you, is because you're hunching and contr like contracting oh. in on yourself. And then I realized that I was in this pod at work. I was surrounded by people who were in this sort of, um, in this corporate environment and we were in this very corporate-y beige cubicle. It gives me the willies even talking about it. Beige <laughs> cubicle felted den mm. and I was and I was in this pod with four people either side of me all of which were so unhappy with their their work with themselves their mm. work lives that, they, that, that it almost became a competition for how um, how much disdain people could have for their their day-to-day -day. Yeah. And, and if every five minutes someone would be going oh well you know just or, or just that need to escape was so rampant and people were just so displeased they were like addicted little, to it it's addiction i think yeah well it becomes very um like it, the the team just wants to support each other i suppose and inevitably everyone has just sort of becomes enablers to each other yeah, so no yeah, one would yeah. really put so people would you sit down for a little whip meeting and and instantly some the, the first words to come out for whoever was leading the meeting would be like the, the well all right well this is a, this is a problem this is negative this everything was negative this negative negative and so I kind of, in my mind, was challenging it all and thinking, okay, well, I don't agree with that. And why are we sat on the negative all the time? And all that sort of thing. And after a while, I was like, I'm just, I can't change this culture myself. I literally, I physically removed myself from the pod by getting a standing desk and I, I moved myself to another part of the office. And everyone was like, what are you doing? Like, why are you, you know? And I was just trying to break the cycle. So bit by bit, I changed the way my body was positioned all day by standing at a standing desk and I I just did whatever I could. It was almost like, it sounds really melodramatic, but I used, it was that was the beginning of where I am now actually. It was so dark that time and I was so unhappy. And I remember thinking to myself, do you remember that film, Sleeping with the Enemy with Julia Roberts? Mm, yeah, absolutely. Do you how she, she's like got that, she's in that really emotionally and physically abusive relationship and she learns to swim in secret so that she can fake her own death yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and get away from her yeah. abuser. I was like, okay, I'm Julia Roberts in Sleeping with the Enemy. 
I need to learn to swim, and I'm going to one day, when the time is right, I'm going to throw myself overboard, and I'm going to fake my own death, and they'll they'll never be able to catch me, and I'll just get out of here. So my version of learning to swim was like, in secret, I was just upskilling myself so I could try and sell my skills as a freelancer yeah. once I made a break for it. Mm. And I started to fake have sick days, and I would go and meet with um, prospective employers and say, like, you know, could you hire me as a as a you know as a freelancer? Yeah. Could you? But you know, you took the steps. It's important yeah. to kind of just not kind of abruptly, but you kind of did it uh, with a plan. In mind, exactly. Know? Well, it was a slow, you know, and and just like anyone who's experiencing Stockholm syndrome. You, you, it's so terrifying in the wide world because you've been led to believe that you're worthless. Mm. <laughs> that I didn't think I had much to sell, and I didn't think that I would be a valuable commodity in the freelance gig economy. And I, I just was so convinced and beat down by this underpaying, undervalued environment that I think the point at which I, I finally made a break for it, I had to actually convince myself that yes, I'm worth something, and I'm worth more than this experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I deserve more than this, and I'm I'm going to get out of here. And so I, the universe really had my back. I, I definitely believe in that sentiment that if you leap, the net will appear. And, yeah. and you know the and I love. There's a really great saying. I once um, heard Barbara Streisand was being interviewed on Inside the Actors Studio, <laughs> and she quoted Goldemir, and the quote was, "At the moment of absolute commitment, the universe conspires to assist you." And I, I love that sentiment. Absolutely. And I was so committed to not only getting the fuck out of there, but also creating a map by which I could inspire other people to do the same. Mm-hmm. And honestly, the nucleus of my podcast and the reason why I created a, con- a company that makes content to inspire people. What's the name of the podcast? The, quit Your Day Job. Quit Your Day Job. <laughs> quit Your Day Job, asterisk, a podcast for frustrated creatives. Because it is absolutely that I, the podcast is dedicated in quiet to myself five years ago, who was stuck in that job where he was he felt worthless and needed to be reminded that there was more. And so I, I'm the reason why I make that podcast is because I want people to to be inspired by people who are doing their best life, mm-hmm. living and, and, and contributing their energy to something that they really believe in. For the purpose, not just of themselves, but of contributing to the the wider world. You know, you set up, you you if you are really um, on on point on on, um, on purpose, you can't help but inspire people because it's absolutely. absolutely the best use of your energy. So I think it's you know, some might say it's very selfish to focus on what you want to do solely, but I actually think it's it's that beautiful point at which selfishness and selflessness absolutely because that it's that that's positive energy coming out of you and that's only going to just make other people happy and help other people in the end being a creator being creating things seems to be at your core um and that is where i think you get your happiness from 100 percent. outside of that outside of working what what do you do to kind of get to your happy place or is working just your happy place well, I was I had a friend who I was explaining to her what I'm working on at the moment, and she said, "So, what are you doing for yourself?" And I, I was so delighted to have the realization that, for the first time in my life, they've merged, mm. where the thing I'm doing for work and the thing that I do in my spare time are the same. Because for a long time there, you know, I've had a podcast since I was working for someone else, and that was what I would do in my spare time. And now it just so happens that what I'm making um, for other people, I'm I'm pitching them ideas just like my podcast to get them to you know, 
to be able to use one of my biggest clients is a vitamins and supplements company and I just make content that I think their core clientele will be really mm-hmm. excited by that is exactly what I would make for myself in my spare time. Yeah. So they have merged but the wider beyond just you know turning up to make to make work I am truly happy when I uh, am absorbing inspiration and for me that looks like um, I love cinema I love magazines if I had you know I if I had another day in my week I would dedicate it just for the sake of of you know reading books yeah, being I, in, yeah. being a, I also feel like it's a very effective use for my time on the weekend and generally giving myself I'm only really able to give myself one day off a week because six days are sort of spent trying to build a company that allows me to in the not too distant future have more days off a week but, mm. but I've definitely I will have earned that time because I've for the last couple of years really only acknowledged like one weekend day a week yeah and um So is that a day that your weekend to kind of absorb and get, or is that, or do you want to completely shut off? No, I've got no, uh, that one uh, is generally looks like being in nature, uh, reading. Yeah, it it looks just like that, actually. It's, it's, you know, I I definitely don't spend the whole day just watching Netflix. I'm, (laughs) I'm sort of trying to find things to, I suppose my viewing tends to fall into two categories. There's like consolation viewing, which is doesn't ask too much of you. It's stuff that feels yeah, yeah. effortless and lovely. So for me, that looks like like I love RuPaul's Drag Race. I watch old episodes of Nigella all the time because that just makes me feel so good. <laughs> my I'm, I'm, playlist right there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm super into um, Chef's Table at the moment because yeah. that's about passion and process. There's another series on Netflix, which I'm is the greatest thing that I've discovered, uh, which is abstract which is basically yeah, like chef's I table I watched one, but, yeah, for, but for other creative processes yeah. like illustration and set design so you know I, I and documentaries I just recently watched an amazing documentary on Franca Sozzani who's the editor of Italian Vogue who passed away right, a couple yeah. of years ago so I always try and I mean those are things that I would watch effortlessly because they feel like a nice cup of warm soup and they yeah. feel fun and turn me on and you know I'll watch like I, I love fashion and I love things that um you know, fabulous. My when I'm really uh, brain dead and I need to feel comfortable, I'll watch. Um, I'll go to like Vogue's um, uh, runway app and I'll just look yeah, at right. like, images yeah. from like latest collections because they just it asks so little of you. Mm, absolutely. <laughs> and they have really great video. They have really great video content as well. So I know I love to just mind like not mindlessly, but without my sensor being too activated. Yeah. There is a mindlessness to it in the in the Zen sense that I love to just absorb without criticism. And then there's something that then when I'm feeling a bit more um, like eating something, consuming something a bit more hearty, I love to watch like French New Wave cinema or you know Italian neorealism or just things that are beautiful pictures where you know you yeah. can you can just absorb the and I think that the richness of that work is what gives me my best ideas. So I definitely have to. You don't always feel like watching a you know a fifty year old foreign film, but <laughs> I, but occasionally, but I just go you know what this will be really good for me like eat yeah. your vegetables you know so I'll just force myself to to consume not force myself but encourage myself yeah. to it make the time something a really bit more hearty but i'm sort of like poor old like modern cinema doesn't have it's funny all of the most talented film, filmmakers have just left um, film and either gone to tv mm. or left like feature length film 
going to television, or like experimental filmmakers of yesteryear who once had their place in the art house section, I think have gone to kind of fashion film and, you know, right. other platforms, you know. If you watch what Gucci's been making in the last couple of seasons, mm. like that is where those are the art house cinema cinema files of 20, 30 years ago yeah, right. now exist in that space. Yeah. And it's experimental and it's mind-bending and it's far out. And I just love that it's found its place in fashion. I mean, it's funny, my content, I always wanted to be a filmmaker. And uh, I think when I realized that even if I managed to solve the riddle and make a feature-length film, would anyone in Australia go and see it? Mm. Probably not, you know, like... People, you could work in television, you could find your audience, and that works. I've got yeah. lots of friends who tell great stories in the TV space. But as a, as a, a maker of cinema, like, would I know amazing Australian films in the last 10 years that no one's gone to see, myself no, included, because you get so lazy. Like, yeah. it's really it's really disheartening. So, it's a weird time for film right now. It's in yeah, a transition it's trans- phase. It's definitely in the state of transition. I, yeah. I thought we were going to see a golden age of Australian cinema in my career time but I think it's going to find its voice in other platforms mm-hmm. and that platform will probably be consumed via devices. It'll yeah, just be right. a, a different time for filmmakers. I mean, there's a, a bit of sadness there, but you can't just hang on to the, the past away. You have to kind of move forward with it, I think. There, there might be like the next generation or two might look at us and think that we're idiots for consuming so much on our phone and mm. go back yeah. to so, watching things <laughs> in big rooms. Maybe yeah, there'll yeah. be a, a romance for it again. Absolutely. There's always going to be that cycle, I think, that always comes back. So so how does, um, last question, how does it feel to be you right now? What's, what's your oh, mind like right now? I've, I've wanted to get to this place for so long, and I don't want to have any sense of um, holding on too tight or being too afraid to to move on from this space. I hope this is the beginning of, of a feeling that matures as I, as I do. But throughout my childhood and teens and 20s, I just, I just craved autonomy and I just really wanted to be able to, and I'm sure everyone has this, I just had this feeling for this person that I was meant to be. And I really felt like when I was a child and being told what to do by older people who I thought didn't really know what they were talking about, I always felt like, oh, well, when I'm in charge, like when I'm an adult, when I'm in charge, and then I, th- I suppose I became a teenager and then became in my 20s, and I still didn't feel like I was there yet. Mm. I was always waiting to have a career that resembled what I believed in. You know, I was waiting to get, I was waiting to get paid for what I wanted to do. And it took me so long, and I'm 35 now, and I, and I can only say that this feeling has landed, I think, in the last 18 months, maybe even less. Mm. So that's... It's a long time to be wait to be craving the evolution to get to a place that you want to be, but I can actively say that I'm now in a place where I feel reflects where I've wanted to get to for such a long time, and I feel completely inspired and empowered, and and there's autonomy to the work that I'm creating because I can make a job around things that I love, playing with skills that I enjoy to work with that taps into the change that I want to see in the world. And I think that the homework that it's taken to get to this place couldn't have been, um, you couldn't have left. I couldn't have been fast-tracked. I had to definitely, you know, uh, pay my dues to get to a place where I felt like I earned that. Maybe to get there super fast might have made me less appreciative of it. Mm -hmm. But I feel very respectful of that. And I think the way it manifests in me now is to want to 
just do it as well as I can, you know? Like I, I work with this really amazing small team of creatives who are also friends of mine and I want to be in midwiving them through doing amazing work that they're really proud of, you know, getting allowing them to evolve into careers that they love. And that feeling of like, no one has to, no one has to be, there's no one who is uh, subordinate in the scenario. I'm able to get great work out of the people I work with and then that facilitates great work that I really believe in and they really believe in it too. And it just seems like it's a beautiful, um, beautiful cycle of contribution. Awesome. And we'll leave it at that. Awesome. Thank you, Ben. This is great. Appreciate it. Does it have to end? Oh, I have to end.